Picture a purple swamp. You are standing barefoot, ankle deep in water. Here and there, a lone tree stands as a marker. There is a mountain way, way off in the distance. And this landscape continues as far as the eye can see in every direction. This land is vast. It's the Black Lagoon. Anything can happen here. I kicked my feet as I did not know what to do next. A fragrance simmered in the clear air, and I wondered if it wasn't just the ambient smell of the place. It smelled exactly like cinnamon. I only had a few minutes more to hang about the swamp because I was supposed to be at work soon, and the process of readying myself often consumed the better part of an hour. Obligation has the nasty side effect of destroying this natural ecosystem. I wanted to walk and explore, but right before my eyes, the realm was fading out at the edges. Hang on, I thought, but to no avail. A white mist engulfed everything, and I found myself standing two feet upon carpeted ground in my living room apartment. I sighed, for the magical realm opens only so briefly. I prepared a light lunch of baked potato Eggs with mushrooms, pepper, and cauliflower, and the whole thing drizzled with olive oil. I poured a cup of hot coffee to go with, and spent the next half an hour gazing out the window at the yard. For work, I handled blocks of cheese at the nearby grocery store. The work was incredibly easy, though I won't disparage it. At work, I learned the many varieties of cheese, the many ways of packaging cheese, and how to sell cheese to customers. It was only there that I could have enlightening conversation with my coworkers and the people who came by to shop. I stumbled into the job in an idiotic way. Alone, having just moved to a new city, I needed pay to cover my expenses. Housing, clothes, food, etc. The grocery store was the first place I walked into, and I was hired within the week. I was quite grateful for the position. When one is gainfully employed at any occupation, many practicality boxes are checked. Now I could pretend to be practical. As an added bonus, grocery store workers received a steep 20% off discount on all purchases, plus 
gained access to the many perfectly good but too ugly to put on shelves vegetables that the produce department gave away for free. As I mentioned, I worked in cheese, but I never became a full-blown expert on the subject, probably because my mind was often in another place. Ever since the Black Lagoon had appeared and subsequently disappeared, I spent a lot of my time scheming my way back. All of my attempts were futile, however, because the Black Lagoon would obey the laws of no man, even if you wanted really badly to visit. I just want to get one thing straight. I'm not completely crazed, and nor am I delusional. This event actually happened. I actually found myself inhabiting a realm completely unlike our everyday reality. I still have no idea how. But the question of how seems completely beside the point, because this other realm exists, and its existence is a miracle. The next time it happened, I was in the coffee shop up the street from work. It was a crowded Monday. Outside in the street, snow was falling in its customary fashion, and inside the shop, the music and amiable chit-chat of the other coffee drinkers created an enjoyable din. I knew what was happening when everything went silent, as though someone had turned down the volume knob of the scene. For one second, I panicked. Then, a white smoke engulfed us all, and I was left alone, standing quietly in a foggy field with nothing but the chirping of birds for company. As I started picking my way around the reedlands, a deep calm spread through me. I traveled from swampy hillock to swampy hillock, listening intently in order to get my bearings. I somehow knew time was short, so I called out into the mist. Hello! I heard nothing. Then, my voice came back. It said, Hello! 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 A devilish grin spread across my face. Finally, I thought, something is happening here. What that something might have been, I did not know, but I was excited. I felt as though one of the secrets of this place had shyly stepped a pinky toe into view. In my elation, I took another step into the mist, and everything faded. I again found myself in the coffee shop milieu. Nothing had changed. Everything was as it had been before. The fat flakes were piling up on the sidewalk. Cars slid past on the street outside. I felt slightly disappointed, as if jilted on a blind date, and I wondered how I could prolong the event in order to discover something more. Meanwhile, work started in an hour.
Otto worked cheese department at the grocery store too. She stocked the counters while consuming an astonishing number of caffeinated beverages. To her, I mentioned these periodic visitations by the Black Lagoon I'd been having. I did so sheepishly, as though reporting something symptomatic to my doctor. Oh, yes, I've heard of that before, said Otto. She smiled and gripped her can of soda. Sounds exactly like the thing one of my friends used to have. He was taken away to a hospital one summer when we were kids and he never came back. I returned to my menial task. Today, I was to split a gigantic hunk of cheddar into tiny rectangles suitable for sample by toothpick. Time passed, of course. Late at night, in my bed, I reviewed the context of this, my dissolute life. I was a person in my late twenties, occupied by dull, cheese-centric tasks, living and working in an unknown city, somewhere, USA, and periodically possessed by the sweeping vision of a mysterious, impenetrable land of fantasy. Beyond that, I was a bachelor, or actually I was in the process of becoming a bachelor. After a summer of wandering around on bicycles, my ex-lover and I had moved in together upon arriving in this new city. Now we were just roommates. What would otherwise seem to be an uncomfortable situation was mitigated by the fact that we both valued highly the neighborly role of being each other's roommate and only significant acquaintances in this our chosen home and new city. Things were at least peaceful on the home front. I spread my fingers through the cream-colored shag of our apartment floor. Out the window, snow swirled in gasps. I decided I was hungry, so I went to the fridge, but Distracted, found myself scrolling Instagram for 15 minutes in the cold blue glow of the open refrigerator door. When I snapped out of it, I felt minutely more enlightened about the state of the NHL, specifically the Boston Bruins. I took myself back to my bedroom and conveniently dissolved into dreamland. Hunger. Forgotten.
Black Lagoon again, and this time I had time. Hello, I shouted. Hello, 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 came the echo. This way, I yelled. This way, this way, this way. A path opened up in the mist, easy as that. The lagoon was just waiting for its opportunity to show me the way. Following the path before me proved to be intimidating. I got turned around in the fog more than once. Soon, though, my way was lighted by torches, and making progress was a simple matter of hopping from one clump of reeds to the next. Listening, I could hear the most gorgeous of soundscapes. I heard the unlimited spiraling swirls of water. I heard birds and bugs, a symphony of them, hidden within their small homes. And I heard the air and the plants as a kind of background filter for all of this music to glide on. Wow, I said to myself, transfixed. Wow, replied the Black Lagoon. Wow. Time was passing weirdly. It seemed like hours of trudging and traipsing along when I came to the base of a very old tree. Its trunk was as big around as a house. Now this is what I'm here for, I thought to myself. I suddenly felt the need to commune with this sentient entity. Creeping up to the gargantuan arbor, I pressed my hand to its purple bark. Standing there, palm to tree, I was flooded with memories of my life outside. Of my life outside. My best friend, Brendan Casey, and I used to romp all over the woodlands where we lived. Like explorers, we named the regions that we came across. The bog was a swamp we had to cross to get deeper into the forest. Popcorn Hill was named for a straw-colored horse called Popcorn. In winter, we would journey across the now frozen ponds to rip apart the dry cattails and set free their fluff. Together, we discovered that there is no end to the magic of the woods. In every season, there is something new and sacred to know. One spring, Brendan and I explored the woodlands 
around the barn where he and his sister Emily rode horses. From the undergrowth, we uncovered the rusted wreckage of an ancient car. The whole thing was shot through with bullet holes, and the glass had all been kicked out. We checked it out for a little while, remembered it for our maps, and never went back again. It felt as if something sinister dwelt there. It was the kind of place that was definitely haunted by night. I loved my friend Brendan as much as anyone in the world. His was my second family growing up. The Casey's were five, not including a number of animals. There was Brendan, his little sister Emily, their little brother Timothy, who we called the Bobwee, and Kathy and Peter. I used to look forward to when our moms would get us together, which they did with some regularity, despite the fact that we lived in different towns. Brendan also introduced me to my first favorite bands of all time, Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath. On Sundays, Peter sometimes drove us to his office in Boston, and we played Cashmere and Achilles' Last Stand on repeat as we went. When we got to the office, Brendan, Timothy, and I would run amuck with our day. We pilfered office supplies and rode the silver elevator up and down. I distinctly remember throwing some things down a hallway and being reprimanded for it, but I know not what, nor by whom. To me, Emily Casey was a mysterious person. She was sweet and shy, and she wore freckles and red hair, and I loved her. She rode a horse called Ace. Ace was big, beautiful, and brown, and carried a white mark on his forehead. To this day, Ace is the only horse I ever attempted to ride, and that only for four minutes while he was led in a slow circle by a caretaker with a rope. I hopped off Ace's back to run and frolic in the woods. It was spring again. The skunk plants were blooming in the creek beds, and with sticks, they had to be decapitated. I am happy to report that there is a lot more to this story to say, but for now, let us return to the moment of the palm touching the trunk of the ancient tree. I had closed my eyes. When I opened them, the sky had dimmed. It was no longer day here in the Black Lagoon. It was quickly becoming night. When I looked up the trunk of that giant tree, I glimpsed the moon through its branches. The marvelous moon watched us with its patient, smiling gaze, and I was filled with the glorious sensation of being wrapped up in a soft blanket and tucked into bed. But when I turned my gaze upward, I also noticed something hanging from the upper branches of that purple tree. What the heck is that? I said involuntarily. Then, I instantly knew. It was the remains of the party. 
remembered the night that I officially fell out with my beloved family, the Casey's. Brendan, Emily, Tim, and everybody were away on a vacation somewhere. Perhaps they were in Ogunquit, Maine, hanging out on the beaches. Or maybe it was Deer Park in New Hampshire. Remember Deer Park? At Deer Park, we used to swim out across the lake to Shark Rock, which is an actual rock someone had painted with red and white teeth. The most terrifying part of swimming there wasn't the grotesque visage of the rock itself. It was imagining the crusted leviathans who inhabited the surrounding waters. Fear would inevitably take hold during our crossing and cause us all to swim pell-mell for the safety of solid ground. Most of the time, I just waited in the shallows, trying to catch guppies and crayfish with a bucket. So, the family was away, and it was my job to take care of the cats. I had the keys to the house, and being the age of 16 or 17, I abused my power to host a typical high school party. The teens arrived at sundown. Beers were had. Music was consumed at a high volume. There were even 20-somethings there who appeared with cigarettes. In the debauched and unwholesome company of the party, we kids were finally free for the space of one night from the manifold oppressions of growing up. Meanwhile, the cats were asking for food. When the events of the night disappeared with the onset of morning, it was time to dispel the evidence. I wiped the countertops and straightened the cushions, made the beds. As a group, we gathered the beer cans and other refuse in a garbage bag, and when it was all said and done, I watched, horror-stricken, as someone hurled the bulging sack out into the woods where it promptly snagged itself half of the way up the spiky trunk of a pine tree, sagging, obvious, and with no avenue of retrieval. Once the Casey family returned home from vacation, it didn't take long for Peter to discover the fateful evidence hanging so blatantly from the tree behind his house. And it followed that I received a visit from Emily and Kathy, who felt completely betrayed by what I had done. Worst, for me, was how nonchalant my best friend acted about the whole event. Brendan wasn't the type to hold a grudge. But later, it occurred to me that I had left him completely out of a clandestine bout of troublemaking, which had transpired at his own house while he wasn't there. That I hadn't brought it up to him. That I had tried to hide it. Brendan and I drifted apart after that. I became possessive of new friends I had made in high school, 
and essentially betrayed my loyalty to my best friend. Walls were constructed throughout the forests of our childhood, and nowadays we sometimes send a birthday text back and forth. Gazing into the top of the purple tree, I saw that the ugly growth was really just that bag full of cups and cans. It had become lodged here in the Black Lagoon to languish, potentially for eons. No way I was going to let that happen. I gripped the wide trunk as best I could and shimmied all the way up to pull it loose. The bundle fell with a clatter and the air seemed to breathe a great sigh of relief. I tore it open. Instead of crushed and rusting empty beer cans, something weird came out. These bright, blue, glowing, spectral fish swam up out from the plastic. They swirled around me for a minute before floating into the treetops. They swam through the branches with infinite grace, hiding here and there as if the branches were coral. I thought about everything at work while slicing through a hunk of smoked gouda. I determined that patience was essential. I still did not know when or how I would next be overcome by the Black Lagoon. Its machinations remained shrouded in mystery. What was going on? After a few more wheels of cheese passed over and through my chopping block, a white plastic implement with a wire and a handle bearing the title Cheese Commander Pro. I figured I was doing as I had always hoped to do, follow the spirit of creativity to success. What spirit, I wondered, recognizing that life comes with no instruction manual. I scrunched my mouth over to one side and thought. Otto took a swig from her yerba mate in a can, while Pandora Radio shuffled through its sterilized music algorithm. to be lovers. Now we live together. Suffice to say, it's complicated. Did our relationship ever become an honest merging of two fates? That's what relationships are, right? I always felt I was giving more 
than I took. I came to realize that my lover tended to accept, accept, receive, and it was a little less natural to offer, suggest, enact. But maybe she felt the same way about me. Maybe I was blind to the ways that she was offering. This would have honestly been fine for me. I'm a happy giver, especially when my gift is appreciated. And Mia, her name, didn't lack the capacity for deep appreciation. She sang whenever she was feeling fine. It was a tenacious habit of contradiction which eventually wore me down. Why don't we go this way? Do that, I would say. Why would we go there and do that? I don't see why we would go there and do that. Why don't we go there and do something else? Okay, I would reply. Sometimes I would simply want to do something for no reason. Visit the park, let's say. And this suggestion would only be met with a vast incredulity, as if an aimless walk to the park and back were an affront to progress and a waste of human initiative. In short, going with the flow, as the kids call it, didn't come naturally whenever we were together. For whatever reason, Mia didn't lack this capacity were a suggestion coming from a third party. I think this means that we didn't learn to fully trust each other. But I'm being too kind. In the end, she rejected me. Then we moved in together. I was left brokenhearted with the object of my ardor sleeping in the room next door. The woman I believed I would marry. Granted, how early in our friendship I proposed might have shaken anyone's trust instincts. From the first moment we met, I would worship her. I could picture the children she would love dearly and who would love her and call her mama with expectation in their little souls. And would those same little children call me papa? It had to be. It must be so. It was at the Somerville Winter Farmer's Market that I first saw her pretty face. She floated like a vision in the crowd. The mushroom farmer had asked me if I wouldn't vend his produce that day, so I roused myself and put on a clean pair of underwear in preparation for said communion with the public. I remember the day perfectly. It was a gorgeous February morning with sunlight streaming all around through the blue air. I danced up the street with a cup of joy in my heart, tapping my toes to a Stevie Wonder track. How was I to know that on that day I was going to meet the love of my life? I was leaning against the wall of the mushroom booth, completely surrounded by fungus, when Mia first floated into view as if propelled by her own angelic force field of electromagnetic levitation. Our eyes met for a split second and in that minuscule fraction of time, my heart did a double take. I galloped out from behind the mushroom stand to be by her side. You look good, I think I said stupidly. Mia, with natural grace, took the compliment in stride. 
But how was I to communicate the fervor she had instantly struck in my heart? Uh... I mumbled. Shaken and altered, I went back to my stand. Thankfully, Mia also worked at the Winter Farmer's Market as a meat salesperson. She had been perusing the stalls on her shopping break. We were able to exchange numbers before the end of the day. I felt like the luckiest man in the world. I was smitten by an angel disguised as a modern woman. It wasn't long before all my assumptions broke down. Not only was Mia genderqueer, she was also younger than I supposed, 22 and still in college, and she was pretty sure she didn't ever want to have children. Ooh, I'm never having children. The polar ice caps are melting. Society is busted. What life do I have to promise to them? Besides, kids are too expensive. Sometimes, when things overwhelmed her, she would loose her arms to gravity and exclaim, Oh, but I'm just a kid! I loved her so much, it was hard for me to see how we might not be such a good fit. I was under a spell, ready for anything, and felt how deeply anything was possible. I still hadn't told Mia about my visitations by the Black Lagoon. I didn't want to risk another one of her dismissive remarks. I tried talking myself out of it. It's not the kind of thing she's into. She's not going to even try to be supportive. Then the thought occurred to me, what if I need help? Who could I count on if not my roommate slash ex-lover? A question like that should immediately give the asker pause. Still, I wanted help. What if the Black Lagoon finally sucked me in forever and wouldn't let me out? I had to make sure someone out there knew what had been going on, just in case. I decided that the next time I saw her, I would broach the topic with Mia. Mia was chopping up a head of red cabbage in the kitchen. Hmm? She said absentmindedly as I sidled up. Mia, I have something to tell you. It's not the easiest thing to explain. I've been having visitations by a mystical landscape that hijacks my senses. I guess it's kind of like a seizure or a trance. Uh, why are you telling me this? She turned around to look at me. Was that worry in her eyes? I... I just wanted you to know in case something serious happens and I have to go to the hospital. The hospital? I don't know. It's very unpredictable. I honestly don't really know what's happening. Mia cut a fine figure in the morning light. Blade in hand, topless, wearing her yellow booty shorts. Her wild red hair streamed across her shoulders and cascaded down her back. There was an emotion related to rage shimmering in the back of her turquoise blue eyes. Alex, what are you talking about? 
Look, I said. I'm just trying to give you the heads up, okay? In case anything happens. I'm not saying anything is going to. I've actually been enjoying the encounters, but that's not the point. The point is, now you know a little something of what has been happening to me, and now I don't have to be so afraid of winding up catatonic or something. And if that does happen, at least you'll know where I went. Mia's blade hand lowered unconsciously. Her eyes became dark and searching. Alex, if this is some game or something, then just stop it right now. I don't know what you're trying to say to me. Game or something? What did she mean? I'm not trying to trick you or anyone. I wasn't going to tell you about this because I didn't want to have to explain myself or defend against you. Not that I fully can explain. Mia's free hand went to her brow. She covered her left eye with her palm. Thankfully, at that moment, two things happened to simultaneously break the scene. The head of red cabbage rolled onto the floor with a thud, and the tea kettle started whistling. I took the distraction as my opportunity to return to my room to hide away for a while. She and I each had work in a few hours. Time was precious and short. On my end, I couldn't wait for my next admission to the Black Lagoon. It defied any kind of cajoling or coercion. There was nothing I could do to initiate the experience. Or wasn't there? I wasn't entirely satisfied with that. There had to be some way I could help open it up, reveal more of its splendor, its beauty, its value. The next morning, Mia was up brewing coffee. She brewed me a cup and set it down next to me on the floor. Our apartment still had no furniture. She didn't say a word, neither did I. The little apartment building that we lived in was painted gray. The ceiling squeaked when our upstairs neighbors walked across their floor, and our floor squeaked whenever we took a step too. Our only windows faced north and west, so at any point of the day, our home was filled with elegant, diffuse light, but never any direct sunlight. It was a place for only the hardiest, shade-loving plants. As I sipped the coffee at my elbow, I gazed upon Mia's beauty. She would be another man's wife someday. That is, if she decided to marry at all. Maybe she would choose to marry a woman. What are you looking at? She said, noticing my gaze. Had I been zoning out? Oh, just seeing you, I replied. You are so lovely, you know. Oh la la. Mia waved a hand before her coquettish smile, as though it were the fan of a French society matron. Then, with a harder edge to her voice, Yes, I am lovely. Thank you. She was tired of praises of her physical beauty. That's all I had given her for the better part of a year. Still, she wore herself well, and I couldn't help but admire her anyway. Mia rose to make a veggie scramble for breakfast. I had another sip of coffee and thought about the Black Lagoon.
When Mia was through cooking, we ate, talking about this and that. Then she had to go, and I only had a couple of hours before work, too. We did our modest stack of dishes, crowded over each other to floss and brush in the bathroom mirror, and said our goodbyes for the day. Barring any unforeseen circumstances, we would see each other later that night. The ceiling squeaked. I went back to my bedroom to lay on my back with a book for an hour. It was an ancient Taoist sex manual. Interesting stuff. How come young men aren't taught this stuff in school, I wondered. After a while, I put the book down and moved off into other things. The day was just beginning, and it would turn out to be a doozy. Under the sink, we kept a cardboard box for recyclables. And next to it were a quantity of brown paper bags for filling with garbage. The third kind of waste we generated in our apartment was the compost. It's the food waste, including but not limited to coffee grounds, moldy vegetables, stale bread, and bits of organic floof. We collected it all in a Tupperware container, and when it filled up sufficiently, I would take it out. Conveniently, the collection point was at the grocery store where I worked, so it was never any trouble for me to take the container. Compost containers let out a god-awful stench anytime they are opened, so the procedure was to always open and close them as quickly as possible. That, and hold your breath for the duration of the operation. On this day, our Tupperware was full up, so I determined to do as I normally would in this type of situation, and I packed my bag with the week's rotten vegetables, left quietly, and trudged off down the hill. I say trudged because a snowstorm had turned up overnight, and the walkways were all covered in a good six inches of powder. The world was hushed and white while internally my waters stirred slowly. Happy snowflakes commune upon my hat, and I had jazz in my brain. I crossed the busy street that separates my neighborhood 
from the commercial district. The grocery store loomed into sight like a sea freighter in a squall. As I drew closer, I spotted the line of green compost receptacles where they stood huddled against the side of the building. I approached unhurriedly, head still swinging with music. I selected one of the bins, opened its lid, emptied the entire Tupperware inside, and closed the lid. I bent down to put the cover back on because the Tupperware still had some stinky coffee vegetable slime stuck to the inside, which was no big deal because all I had to do was rinse it out at the upstairs employee break room when I got there. I stood back up and came face to face with a pair of luminous yellow eyes. Come, said the owl boy, and quick as a flash he sprang from the lid of the compost bin and scuttled down the alley around the corner. I stood for a moment, transfixed. Had I really just seen what I think I did? I blinked and turned from side to side. There was no one else around. Snow sprinkled down on everything. I had only glimpsed it for a moment, but the creature had been about three feet tall with an owl's face. It had tufted ears and was wearing, inexplicably, a miniature yellow and brown striped sweater. What? A stupid response, I'll admit, but I was momentarily stunned by reality. Apparently, I had two options. My shift started in 15 minutes and would last for the next seven and a half hours. A long day, and I was needed. The cheese was not going to slice itself. Plus, the company had a 25% off sale on all cheese and all fresh packed olives, which were also part of my duties. The store would be swamped for the last day of the sale, and if I were absent or tardy, my coworkers would be severely shorthanded. Or, I could follow the owl. I glanced at the door of the store. People were milling about, coming and going, all bundled up in their multi-hued array of winter coats. A cold warmth spilled from the automatic doors. I turned to the alleyway. Predictably, it was a passage between gray brick walls and a slab of concrete. A scratchy brown shrub concealed it from view, somewhat. I licked my lips, thinking, thinking, what to do. But the pull was obvious. I picked up my bag and shuffled quickly over to the alleyway and out of sight.
turned the corner to follow the little guy. Had this alley always been here? It seemed to stretch beyond the buildings it ran between. And there was no sign of the owl boy, except a single line of tiny footprints in the freshly fallen snow. Yeah, I thought, there's no way I'm going to make it back for the end of the cheese sale. I walked along, still carrying my bag. What is this place? It was quiet in the alley. There was no sound but the crunchy squeak boots make on new fallen snow. As I proceeded through the swirling snow, two indistinct gray forms appeared at some distance down the alleyway. They rose up against the walls, effectively narrowing the passageway that much more. I stopped for a second, then went on. When the forms solidified, they revealed themselves as twin statues. Nine-foot-tall giants atop massive concrete pedestals. The giants were gray, muscular, ogre-like creatures, and they appeared so lifelike I thought one was about to pick up its foot to step on my face. Looking up met glaring eyes raging down from grimacing faces. One held a great sword by the hilt. The other casually rested an iron-studded club upon its shoulder. The duo were intimidating, to say the least. Like the Kongo Rikishi, who guard the entryway of Japanese Buddhist temples. Anyone who wished to visit the temple or shrine had to pass between them, and were anyone to try to pass with evil intent, the guardians would strike to injure. These two were no different. In the presence of such beings, I had to question my intent. Was I here with evil in my heart? I was just out exploring, so no. Yes, I had decided to bail on people at work who were counting on me, but there was nothing evil about that. Through this simple process of elimination, I determined that indeed, there was no evil intent to my passage. At least, on the surface of things. What of my deeper, less obvious, or more concealed motives that might still be secret, even to myself? How could I know whether or not I was innocently guided by evil? You must ask, came a horrible creak through the alley. It came from the statue. I hadn't spoken aloud. Was my mind being read? Your mind is known, came the echo. The statues hadn't moved a muscle. They stared down at me from their height. Some snow had collected on their faces. Ask, came the command a second time. The silence of the alleyway filled my ears. Okay, I thought. Do not say okay, just ask. 
came the enraged voices. They weren't going to let me get away with anything. It was clear that I was not getting past the guardians without asking the right question. Trouble is, I had no idea what they wanted from me. What question did they want me to ask? I waited for their response to that thought, but none came. The guardians just stared down menacingly. And then it hit me. I am here to learn, I said aloud. Then I got down on one knee. I humbly seek your teachings. No, came the voices. The riddle was repeated. Ask. I wanted to ask, will you please let me through? Pleading with my hands and blinking with my little puppy dog eyes. But I knew there was no point. And then it really hit me. That really was it. There was no need to voice a question. They could not physically restrain me. They were fearsome statues, and that was all. I walked between the statues and into the blizzard, back into the Black Lagoon. There I was, cast out upon the fallen snow, surrounded in a mist of white. I couldn't make out anything in the snow. Depth perception disappeared, and I spun about in that featureless landscape, completely confused as to who I was or where to look. I walked randomly in every direction. Sooner or later, the blizzard cleared, and I was in a wild world of ice. The Black Lagoon was frozen over. Clumps of trees and grasses stuck out here and there like skeleton trees. The sky was blue. Lugging my compost bag through the snow was getting tiring, so I was pleased to come upon a mound of snow with the front door. The structure radiated friendliness and companionship. I listened at the door and heard music. Oh, good. I'm going in. The door opened easily, and I was suddenly in an unassuming coffee shop, just like the one I like to visit on my way to work at the grocery store. The main difference being the clientele, and that the walls here were completely covered with graffiti of every size, color, and shape. The beings seated at the various tables were of every monstrous description, but they were carrying on civilly. The atmosphere was calm and subdued. The music, perfect. I must have been staring because an insistent voice said, hello, can I help you? In a tone that said, hi, snap out of it. I turned to follow the voice and to my surprise, came face to face once again with Owlboy. I calmly ordered a hot green tea and took a seat at the bar next to a furry black animal 
That was a cross between an anteater and a silverback gorilla. Owlboy filled the teapot with hot water from the spout and pushed it towards me with a wink. I accepted with a polite nod of the head, preferring to maintain my silence. I put down my bags and looked around. The bar was called Oasis Bar. It lived up to its name, being a kind of oasis of escape from the snowy wastes of the Black Lagoon. I poured a little green tea and took a sip, but it was still too hot. I looked directly at the owl boy. He really was a miraculous creature. His head was almost that of a great horned owl, but less squarish. He had a humanoid body and his fingers were feathered. What's the matter? said the owl boy. Nothing is, I replied. But in truth, there really was something on my mind. It had to do with my roommate, Mia. For all my peaceable wanderings of that morning, there was a part of my heart that desperately needed some tenderness and watering. I feel very possessive of you. I was saying this to Mia at our kitchen counter. She hadn't come home on New Year's Eve and we had kept apart. She stayed out late to party and I stayed home, keeping to myself. That I felt possessive of her was none of Mia's fault. It had to do with me not being able to perceive my fear of being unloved. Or maybe it wasn't so much my fear of being unloved as it was my fear of being loved. Am I afraid of being loved? Preposterous, I stuttered. What are you thinking? Come on, speak up, said Mia. Have you considered me at all, is what I came out with. I was really looking forward to being with you on New Year's Eve, since you were away the week before, and I don't know, I didn't have the energy to go out after work or anything, so it was just going to be low-key, but I didn't even get to see you, and... I was finding it hard to entrust her with my vulnerabilities. Also, maybe I was caught up with burying them, macho-style, instead of being my vulnerable self. And maybe I still hadn't fully taken the time to study what are my vulnerabilities, to see the fear beneath each one. Aw, heck, said Mia, and I could tell I hurt her feelings. She hadn't meant to forget about me. She was just on her own wavelength. And now I felt bad, because I knew she always tended to internalize guilt and shame, and I was throwing more at her, in the form of calling her out as a thoughtless, inconsiderate friend. And maybe I was a little angry when I didn't think she cared. And maybe I was just plain downright angry that I kept having to dig myself out of dead-end jobs and failing relationships because I'm really just a punk whose one love and talent is for making bad art and useless, uninteresting stories and that I had a bad opinion of myself which none of her harmless jives and wisecracks had ever helped excuse me coddled sufficiently for us to meld into wedded bliss together and begin to believe that we are happy and empowered lovers when actually we act and behave more like uninspired and entitled complainers 
waiting for someone other than ourselves to take control of our lives and effortlessly spin them, careening in the right direction. Enough is enough. How do we break the loop? said Owlboy, after I recounted my tale. Yep, I knew it. He walked to the other side of the bar to tend to a walrus requesting a macchiato. Hey, can I rinse my container in the sink over there? Sure. I had just remembered I was mean to do that, and I still had the Tupperware with me. I rinsed it clean and sat back at the bar. I had a refill of green tea and gazed around the room again. Where are we all going? All of us creatures and characters who wind up finding solace in the dingy bars of alternate worlds. I had to laugh. I was feeling good again. I ordered some soup. It was really delicious. Creamy chicken and wild rice. All those yummy vegetables in there. Warm and nourishing with the hunk of crusty bread. Passing the empty bowl back to the owl boy, I stood up and left the oasis behind. Adios, said Obi. Outside, it had warmed up and the fresh snow was beautiful, blue and white. I wasn't sure where to go and what to do, but I felt happy as I walked along beneath the snow-bedecked trees. Gradually, things became familiar. Hmm, that's weird, I thought to myself. I know this place. It was the local park around the block from my apartment building. It was three days later. Where the hell were you? You just disappeared. Are you serious right now? I was at home and Mia was venting her worry. I'm sorry, I was in the Black Lagoon. I tried to tell you. How was I supposed to know where you were when you just vanished like that? You told me to call an ambulance? Well, I did. And I didn't know what to say to them. There's been a police search going on for two whole days. People are trying to find you. No one at work knows where you went, and they're all worried sick too. I kept thinking they were going to find you dead, floating in the canal like all those other drowned people. You have no clue what you're doing. You're making us all sick. 
I couldn't bear to see her tears. I'm so sorry, Mia. I had no idea that this was going to happen. But you obviously did. You told me so. I did. But it makes no sense. A portal opened and I felt like I was only there for a couple of hours. At least she was upset. I know that's a strange thing to say, but I was experiencing the gross elation of a man who returns from the dead and is thrilled by the grief of those he has left behind. You better go to the grocery store today. I know, I said. Alex, you need help, and I'm not the right person to give it to you. I paused for a second. But you are. You are exactly the right person. I'm completely in love with you. I, I know you are. You make it clear every single day to me. I can't be your nursemaid. I'm not asking you to be. You're begging. In a way, she was right, but I didn't know quite what to do. In the back of my mind, I set my departure from the city, from Mia, for spring, two months from now. For two months, I would go on celebrating this woman, this love. Did she understand me? Do I understand her? What about us? I wanted her so badly, so badly just to be happy with me. And it's just so hopeless to want a thing for anyone else, especially something like that. At the grocery store, I was sat down and informed that I was being let go. Due to their strict tardiness policy, two no-call no-shows equaled termination. Otto signaled me with a look, and we went for a stroll. I believe you wholeheartedly, she said, when I told her my account, and I'm sorry for what happened. We let that hang in the air while we walked along down the busy streets. People were everywhere, going places in their cars, bundled up in jackets against the cold. Look, I'll miss seeing you at work, said Otto. Yeah, me too. I guess this is goodbye. I guess. Dude, you can always come back to the store as a customer, you know. Go home and talk to Mia if she's around. Get some rest. Next time you come back from the Black Lagoon, I want to know. We said our goodbyes and hugged. She turned and walked back in the direction of the store, her twin long braids swinging from beneath her black hat. I did as she said, only I didn't feel tired at all. In fact, I was fully energized and wanted to funnel my vim into something productive. I was possessed by an urge to write, so I grabbed pen and paper and tucked into my bedroom to scribble in solitude. From down the hall, I could hear Mia showering. 
Her presence was real and reassuring. I took to my task with zeal. I loved the act of writing and the mysterious threads of thought that formed the tapestry of a story. That day, the words poured out of my heart faster and harder than at any time before. In an hour, 15 disorganized pages were scattered across the floor, and the energy was gone. I was good and tired. I had a quick drink of water and sank into a very heavy and deep sleep. My dreams were full of symbols I could not put names to, and I was swimming through murky waters. Bubbles streamed all around me. Terrible and wonderful fantasies filled these realms. Merciless crows moved blackly like shapes behind a screen. Upon returning to waking life, I made some ginger tea and paced around the living room. Mia was gone somewhere, and I had nowhere to be, no one to talk to. That changed promptly when, upon returning to my chambers, I spied O.B. himself, honeybee striped sweater and all, thoughtfully picking up and reading the various pages of my manuscript. He turned calmly to meet me, and his eyes were clear and bright as a sun shower. It's not bad, your writings, he said gently. Some fuzzy descriptions, sure, but overall there's flow. Huh was my enlightening response. Thanks? Love! suddenly shouted the owl boy. Love, love, love! He excused himself sheepishly. Then, I wanted to talk to you. There wasn't time at the bar, was there? You made it past the guardians, didn't you? I mean, it's obvious by the fact that you live. Um, I stammered. Wait, who runs the bar when you're away? This the Owl Boy ignored and continued his patient monologue. The Black Lagoon, as I know it, is changing. Weird things are happening. It's changed, rather. Completely, even. Something has happened out here which has affected everything there, and I'm pretty sure, well, I don't know. What hasn't changed? It's like its DNA was scrambled by a two-year-old with a Rubik's Cube. I mean, everything is different now, but at the same time, it's the same. Uh... The owl boy seemed to be muttering off into his own worlds of thought. I could hardly follow what he was saying. I let him spin his wheels. For another longish minute he contrived his longish ramble, then he seemed to snap out of it, notice my presence, and come back. I wanted to talk to you, he repeated. Yeah, I know. What about? I wondered if I was going to have to explain more of my personal challenges to this fluffy anthropomorph. I understand it all, 
what happened to the Black Lagoon and what is happening to you are intricately linked. They are? Of course they are! How? Love! The fish were completely gone from the trees, I understand. That is a big deal. And so special they returned, of course, but somehow not. Not special at all. Regular, even. But what about the trees and the spiders? The water? I don't know. And you, you did it. It was you. You can do more, right? The owl boy obviously had a full mind. When he spoke, he either kept it damned back, as in the Oasis bar, or he let it spill over. Was I supposed to save the Black Lagoon or something? Archetypal, certainly. But I'm not a hero. I don't think I can help you, I said. The Black Lagoon is mysterious, yes, but it keeps messing me up. It doesn't matter, shrieked the Owl Boy. It will keep coming after you. Without a shred of warning, he flung the pages of my writing up into the air and went sputtering around the small room in a frenzy, hooting and chirping fiercely. At that moment, the lock clicked in the door. Mia's singing filled the hall, and then a cheerful, Hello! The owl boy froze in his madness, quickly turned to look at me, and jumped through the open window. Hey, said Mia, peeking around the doorframe, her good mood restored from her early morning yoga class. Why is your room such a mess? She turned around and went back to her bedroom. Why had the owl boy vanished in such a hurry? It might have been convenient for him to stick around and provide some evidence for the truth I was telling. I peeped out the window for him, but predictably, there wasn't any trace. Yes, and he had managed to destroy my bedroom in the process. What could I do? I picked up the papers and organized the things at my desk. I told Mia I'd been fired, which she absorbed disinterestedly. I called my mom, who was intensely relieved to hear my voice. What a weird day. I had some deep thinking to do. I closed my bedroom door and lay there with the lights out for a good while. I wished Mia would sneak in and cuddle with me, but it seemed like that was never going to happen. In sadness, I read a chapter of the novel I was reading, and when I could take no more, I put out the light, fitfully tossing for hours before sleep came.
Hey, what's up, people? This is Alex Khalil, aka FP Lion. Just letting you know that this is where this part of the story ends for now. Hopefully, you got some laughter and enjoyment out of it. This story represents the dual accomplishments for me of writing something I feel proud of, as well as putting those words into engaging audio. I want to thank all the people involved with this project. First, the musicians, especially Jesse Gallagher, Jeff Martin, and Rachel K. Collier, whose audio magics are liberally sprinkled throughout the five parts of this story. Uh, next, a very special thank you from the bottom of my heart to the people whose likenesses appear in this story. Mia and Otto, Alex, Brendan, Timothy, Emily, Peter, and Kathy. I am already working on a new project related to this one. If you want to support this series and you liked it, um, and all of its future iterations, thank you. You can Venmo me directly at Alexander C. Khalil. K A L I L is Khalil. Yeah, I think that's better than subscribing to the Anchor FM channel or Patreon or anything like that at this point. The profile image is a picture of me wearing a tall yellow hat with small red polka dots. Any support is much appreciated. And it goes towards making future versions, iterations of this project. And yeah, thank you. If you would like to reach out to me directly, feel free to send an email to Alexander Charles Khalil at gmail.com and I will get back to you. Okay, with love and blessings until next time, this is Alex FP Lion signing out. Peace.